This episode of Jude Talking to Me was recorded under Limud conditions. Hello, I'm Rachel Krieger. And I'm Philip Simon. Welcome to this special edition of Jude Talking to Me, live from Limud Festival 2020. We are two Jewish comedians. I'm Reform, so I see Limud as somewhere people go to meet a prospective partner. And I'm Orthodox, so I see Limud as somewhere where I can help them to get together. And this is the chat show that recreates the sensation of finding yourself on the miscellaneous table at your cousin Hannah's bat mitzvah. Or literally any table in the Limud dining hall. In each episode we chat to two of our favourite Jews about their lives and experiences growing up and how much Jewishness plays a part. Are they Christmas presents or Limud presents? Welcome to Jew Talking to Me. So Philip, what is the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? Well, this week we were both sent promotional gifts. So after two series of the podcast, I think it's safe to say we've discovered our true calling as internet influencers. (laughs) Now, I don't want anyone thinking we're selling out or available at any price, such as a side of salt beef or, I don't know, a lifetime supply of bumba or jars of pickles, Mrs. Ellswood, if you're out there. (laughs) But let me show you my lovely new clear panelled face mask sent by the Jewish Deaf Association to support their Share Your Smile campaign. And did you share your smile? Yes. I mean, I tried to. It turns out after almost a year wearing face masks out in public, I've actually forgotten how to smile with anything other than my eyes, which, (laughs) according to Rabbi Tyra Banks of the Congregation of America's Next Top Model, is known as smizing. So although I can't smile, I'm sure she's now quelling at my smizing success. I like what you did there, very limited. How about you, Rachel? What's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you this week? Well, I work a lot with the organisation Funny Women, and this year one of their clients, Nat West, generously sent some of the team Christmas hampers. And I was incredibly excited about this because, and this probably will come as no surprise at all, I have never had a Christmas hamper before. Right, but why is receiving a Christmas hamper the most Jewish thing that's happened to you? Because it took me ages and ages to unwrap everything, but because I'm strictly kosher, it took me even longer to look up every item on the Bethdin Is It Kosher app to see if I could eat or drink a single thing from it, which of course I couldn't, so I ended up donating it all to my neighbours, but it was very exciting to receive, if I'm honest. And actually, you also generously donated some of the gluten-free biscuits to my wife, so thank you very much for that. My pleasure. But obviously this show isn't all about us, and it's time to introduce our guests. They are Rabbi, author and activist Abby Stein and UK human rights barrister and legal commentator Adam Wagner. Hello. You'll have to unmute yourselves. This Hi, is thank technical. you for having me. Hello. Hi. I, I was waving, so I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't saying anything. Not great for a podcast, the waving, but regular listeners will know we always like to ask how our guests self-define as Jews. You already know that I'm Orthodox and Philip's Reform, but Abby, what kind of a Jew are you? Well, I am many kinds of Jews. I will say, uh, before I answer the question, that professionally, I have worked with and for every Jewish denomination. Uh, literally, starting with the Hasidic community where I grew up, and I've since worked either through Hebrew schools, camps, and uh, Scalin residents with Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, Renewal, humanistic and non-denominational Jewish synagogues of all kinds. Um, so I guess in many ways, I am the entire challenge of all Jewish identities, <laughs> and I'm very proud of that. But personally, I like to say that I'm a cherry-picking Jew, and that is not okay, that is beautiful. And I think the most Jewish thing that you can do, if you look on Judaism throughout history, is pick and choose what you want to do. And to me, that is my identity, to pick and choose the most beautiful parts that I could find and share that both with myself and with all around me. And if you follow me on social media or anywhere in the world, 
world, you know that I can't stop talking about whatever it is, a uh, simple challah or some complicated teaching that I found from a 13th century rabbi who I believe is trans, anything in between. <laughs> I love that, the idea of a cherry-picking Jew. Brilliant. Adam, how about you? Yeah, I, I love that as well. I, I, I'm a cherry-picking Jew, um, definitely. I grew up Orthodox. I'm now Mazorti um, by, by choice. I guess I'd call myself a religious atheist, um, so I'm a, I'm a classic contradiction in terms, um, which I think is a very, has, is very much a Jewish tradition i you know pretty from i keep shabbat more or less i keep kosher i go to shul every week when i can when it's not a lockdown but i do it because i love being jewish and i love the tradition i i believe in judaism if, if that makes sense um although not all of it all the bits i like um, but not the bits i don't um and, and i guess i'm also an out out and proud jew that's always been very important i had a chance to live in the states um for a bit where in new york where i found Jewish identity wasn't something you sort of kept under your clothes. It was something you, you know, you, you wore wore on the outside. And I've really learned from that. And that's what I tried to do myself. I love what you said, if I may jump in, about sure. Judaism. Because I sometimes tell when people ask me if I believe in God, I'm like, I don't know about God. I believe in Judaism more than I believe in God, which could be very interesting. But once again, it could be the most Jewish thing you can do. Definitely. And obviously we're chatting at Limud. But apart from this, Adam, what is the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? Well, if, if it's this week, then I think yesterday um, probably is where I go to, which is we were having Shabbat lunch, um, which is a very small affair in our house and has been for the last nine months for obvious reasons. But I found myself saying to my son, who's 10, because he's had too much challah at breakfast, that he wasn't allowed any more challah, he had to have a bagel, um, because it was, it was more of a sort of balanced, you know, balanced diet. And, and I, said, I said that, and ironically, it wasn't a joke. I just found myself saying it, and I realised um, that was just the perfect example for this podcast, that between a bagel and a challah, you're, you're having a, balance, a real balanced diet. I mean, it would have been more balanced if it was a bygol, but we'll let that one go. We will not let that one go. <laughs> Adam, you I'm are winning Philip. already yeah, yeah, yeah. on points well, I'm, alone. I'm, af I'm afraid where I come from in Manchester, it's a bagel, it's a latke, you know, it's we're, we're, and there's no negotiation. I'm not sure about latke, but you know why where you come from it's a bagel? Uh, it's because it's a bagel. Whatever. Let's put it to one side. Uh, Abby, what about you? What's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? And uh, make it not about bagels. Okay, but I need to just say first, for us, it's always bagels, but more importantly, or or bagels or bagelach. The only time it's a bagel, if it's bagelach. Anyway. Are bagelach like pretzels? Yeah, they could be pretzels, but also like any, we just call them whenever we wanted them, they became bagel if the mood was so inclined, at least uh, specifically on, on like Saturday night, like Moses Shabbat, when we went to get like the fresh, like warm, like straight out of the oven bagel mm. for some reason. It could also be my dad is from uh, Yerushalayim, from Jerusalem, and I think it, that saying comes from there, so it might have something right. to do with that. But outside of that, I will say two things. Uh, the first one on a more joking man manner um, I convinced this girl I'm dating that gefilte fish can be really good if it's homemade and made out of salmon fish, which is how I do it. And when we met, she promised me that she hates it. And I think there is an entire generation of American Jews, I can't talk for UK Jews, but I get a feeling it's a bit similar, who think gefilte fish is gross because the only ones they've ever had are the ones that are ready made in jars, which whoever came up with that, if there's a hell, they never get out of there because <laughs> that is gross. But if you do it homemade, and according to her, I succeeded in convincing her that it can be really good. On a more serious note, though, I want to say that over Hanukkah, so last week and two weeks ago, 
I got several messages, and I don't know if it's just because for any reason now or Hanukkah got these people thinking and they reached out to me, but I got messages from several people saying that around the theme of that they are LGBTQ Jews who felt for whichever reason that there's no space for them in Judaism, and they either listened to a certain talk that I give or read some of the source sheets that I've had online or read my book, and at least to quote one of them, for the first time in years, I think I might find a Jewish community that works for me. To me, convincing or showing LGBTQ Jews that they can be part of the Jewish community is not just okay. It is the most Jewish thing that could happen to me. Yeah, that's really wonderful. That is, and especially I think somewhere like Lemud, to be able to see how all-inclusive we can be. Yeah, we accept people who say bagel, we accept people who say bagel, people who say bageluch, like we're very, very inclusive. We are, and also for everyone who is keeping track at home, we've had chulent, bagel, challah and gefilte fish, so if you are <laughs> playing Limud Bingo, then you are very close to a full house. <laughs> Now, Abby, obviously you're in New York at the moment. Uh, I don't know how strict your lockdown is in New York, but across England, lots of people woke up on Boxing Day to find themselves in our highest level of tier four. So we know things are very tough times and we always like to check in with our guests and ask, what's the matter, Bubbler? Well, I would say that unfortunately we don't have a lockdown. I don't know if anyone has been following. I, I promised you all during our initial meeting, I would try not to get too political. So I'm not gonna get too political, but I think a lockdown would do us all some good right now. But we do not have one. I have personally been sticking to literally a handful of people who are kind of the only people I've been hanging out with ever since March. I actually spend this weekend with them as well. I'm technically in New Jersey right now, but who really cares? New Jersey is just part of New York, if you ask me. I know a lot of Jersey people are going to get really angry at me for saying that. So I want to say, obviously, there's COVID, but I feel like, if I may, it has been 10 months. Can I say something that bothers me that's not COVID-related, please? Please do. <laughs> um, yes, we love it. I wanted to say, over the past week, and I have had one specific friend on Twitter that has been under attack, but it's kind of been a theme, where Jews of color, specifically Black Jews, are being targeted not by non-Jewish anti-Semitic people. Not that we lack any of that. We have anti-Semitism on the right and on the left in the center, and unfortunately coming from everywhere. But as if that's not enough, I've really been worked up on the fact that far too many Jews of color, specifically Black Jews in the U.S., have been targeted by fellow Jews. I think besides the fact that our conversation needs to shift, too often I see conversations about welcoming in Black Jews into our Jewish community, and I'm like, what are you even talking about? Black Jews are part of our Jewish community, whatever you want to or not. Whatever you decide to welcome them or not, that's the wrong way of looking at it. But we really need to do better at making sure that, first of all, each and every one of us who are never targeted because our skin color speak up every time we see someone being targeted and specifically as Jews. I think we are not a whole community until every single member of our community is celebrated. It's not just the right thing to do. It's also the good thing to do. We focus too much on Jewish continuity. And I always tell people, at least in the U.S., some of the highest Jewish uh, money goes into Jewish continuity, but far too often we take the people who want to be part of our community and because we don't like their race or ethnicity or cultural background, the language they speak, their gender, their sexuality, and any other reason, we do not treat them as someone who's really part of our community. So yeah, that's the matter, Pupala, right now. Sorry for my rant. No need to apologize for that. No, we, we brought you on here very much to allow you the platform to have a, a rant. So absolutely Great. fantastic. Uh, Adam, I'm going to ask you the same question. Feel free to use it to rant or just to tell us what's the matter, Bubbla? Well, I mean, obviously, um, Rabbi Abbey is is right about we should be as 
properly inclusive and that's certainly what I look for in a Jewish community and I've got no real time or tolerance for communities that aren't like that but unfortunately like every religion we have this undercurrent that the closer knit we are the more excluding we are um, quite often and that's a really difficult dynamic one that comes up in, in my sort of professional life. I do want to talk about COVID um, for a minute just because it's it's so all-encompassing. I've been not just in this these lockdowns over the last nine months but I've been very sort of involved in my work in working I, I, I work with the Parliament Human Rights Committee on on their COVID inquiry trying to figure out what the human rights implications of these lockdowns are and I've become a sort of public voice on explaining what the lockdowns are about and it's kind of it, it is all-encompassing and I guess what's the matter bubbler I, I really miss being at Lemud, being with real people in in real situation. I know you're all real people, but in in real human interactions, I'm, I miss kiddish at shul. I think that's something I I realised the other day is one you know one of the highlights of my week is standing around a table full of fish balls and you know elbowing people out of the way to get to them while having four different conversations and it's something I've not had the pleasure of for almost a year which I, I think for someone who's very sociable and, and enjoys that side of things I, I think that's very difficult and, and I'm really hoping that in the next few months we can all start to climb out of this horrible period which I think has been horrible for everyone but it's been horrible for Jewish communities in, in a particular way just because we are so close-knit generally and we rely on these kind of physical environments and these social situations and food and festival and and everything else that comes with it so I'm really hoping as we come into the new year that this is we're on the way out um but you know touch touch wood if that's um not too christian thing to say You've both brought up different kinds of food, both fish related. I don't know if that's something you want to delve into later, but I'm a proper Jewish mother, so I love it when people discuss food. And I know that apart from, are you single? Because I might know someone. The most common question asked at Limud is, have you eaten yet? And that is shortly followed by, are you doing grab and go or are you going to sit down? But what about any earlier Jewish food memories or even your favourite thing to eat? We know that you're slightly obsessed with fish balls, Adam, but is there anything else that you can tell us about Jewish food. Uh, now I'm going to go back to fish balls actually. Um, no, I don't. I mean, I'm not obsessed with fish balls. They're just a big part of my life, okay, and I haven't had one for a while. I want to keep on this kiddish theme because actually I was thinking back to one of my earliest involved Jewish memories is that I, I was part of um, a, a shul in Bowdoin where, where I grew up in Manchester. It was kind of a knit your own shul, like a, a shtiebel type shul. And you literally, you got there and you set the shul up if you were early enough, you know, because it was in a community building. And you know, got the ark out and um, helped put up the mechitzah and all that because it was orthodox. And the kids' responsibility, I mean kids from, I guess, age six onwards, was to put the kiddush together. So to get all the cakes out of the packets, whatever they were, oh, some cakes, and the fish balls and the olives and sort of distribute it all and make it all nice on the on the pretend silver trays and put it all out. And, 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 and I was thinking back, that is, if I'm thinking back to a very sort of meaningful Jewish food memory for me, I think that must be memorable because it was meaningful for me as someone who likes to, I'm a very communal person, I like to participate, but I'm not, you know, so educated that I can run a service, but I try to do other, I run the children's service at my shul for toddlers, that's my kind of, um, that's my, my shtick, I, I, and I love doing that. So I, I guess that's my meaningful Jewish food memory. That's I think that's, that's really interesting with the, the idea of kiddish and community, I think it goes back to what both of you were saying in your previous answers, 
that for me, I'm not a very religious Jew. I enjoyed going to shul when I went back in the very early days of my life, more for the social element. And I think Kiddush was the time where you would see somebody standing around and that's when you would include them. You'd, you'd bring them in to the communal conversation that you were having. Do you find either of you, I suppose, thinking about Kiddush, is that a time when perhaps your professional and your personal lives clash a bit? Because people, uh, Adam, for instance, people might want to talk to you about COVID and all the, the laws and everything, which they're doing on Twitter. But is there is there a conflict there or are you, are you happy for just the communal element to be more important? Abby, do you want to go? I I just wanted to say I love to talk about Kiddush and community. Um, I don't know if people use that slang outside of New York, but at least in New York, we always have this thing of people that we call people who are JFK, which I guess is a more American thing of people who just come just for Kiddush, uh, which is a very powerful and, and I think a very positive thing. And there's no doubt that food becomes a very big part. But I want to say about Kiddush, there's one story that I always re will remember. And, a teacher of mine told us this story when I was really young, that one Saturday morning, there was a cantor about Tfilah who was singing for too long. And if you've ever been at certain Orthodox synagogues, there's sometimes, there's always that one person who is going to like sing along, like what we would call in Yiddish a chazunishtikl, a long like cantorial solo. And one person ran up to him and was like, come on, you got to stop. It's like Onik Shabbos, we need to go and eat a meal. And like, that's what we have to do on Shabbat. And how dare you take so long? So that person answers him, oh, come on, cut it. You don't really care about Shabbat. You just want to eat a cholin and a kugel. So the rabbi who's listening to all of it turns to both of them. It's like, listen, it's very possible that a person who complains about the long service actually only cares about the kugel and, about the, and the cholin and the food and just wants to have a good Shabbat uh, Kiddush. But frankly, that is what Shabbat is about. I think so much, and maybe it's a bit of a Hasidic way of looking at it, but so much of Shabbat is exactly that fact that these, these simple materialistic yes the kiddush the food whatever it is that is exactly what shabbat is at least partially it's not all shabbat is but it is a very important part of shabbat so being a kiddush you are going to synagogue because you look out for kiddush i think it's once again it boils, it comes back to both what adam and i was talking earlier about what is our judaism saying that you only go to synagogue for kiddush could be the most jewish thing ever and frankly at its core maybe that is the most shabbat thing, as we would say the most shabbat thing that you you could do. If you could hear a tapping noise before, that was my husband ordering me a new Shabbat headscarf with JFK printed all over it, because that is definitely my uh, way of rocking up the shul. I definitely have sort of professional kiddush uh, interactions, particularly my shul is so full of lawyers and judges and you know social activists and whoever else these amazing people that i can't really get enough of it's between that and the and, and the fishballs really and i struggle <laughs> i was talking in the session that i did earlier about this experience i had when i went on the, one of the few times i've been to shul this year i went over rosh hashanah and, and my rabbi came up to me and said i said adam i've got a question for you i didn't know what it would be like they asked me to do something or whatever but it was um you know, we, we've got this issue with the, the COVID rules and I wondered whether you, um, you know the answer. And I found myself saying, according to the strictness of the rules, you could do this, but there's a leniency to do that. And I realized that I'd kind of, not only had, had I become a sort of COVID rabbi, but the whole country had become sort of Jews um, without realizing it because now they have to worry every time they leave the house, whether they're breaking some sort of minutiae of some <laughs> law 
that somebody set for them five minutes ago. So I think we've all become Jews, but in without the kiddish, basically the worst, the worst kind of all the bad stuff without the good stuff. It's a tragedy. And if you couldn't get pasta from your supermarket, then you were fasting as well. Terrible. (laughs) We've talked about it on the podcast before. The idea that you have a certain level of kashrut that you keep in your life. And with lockdown, it was very similar. Certain things that you will do, certain corners you will cut. And it was exactly the same with kashrut. So I think food and Jews have brought a lot to the COVID conversation. Mm, Definitely. Abby, uh, you wanted to say something and I want to hear your Jewish food memory. Exactly. That's what I was going to just try to get at. Because I wanted to say first and foremost, and I get a feeling that everyone so far that has spoken here on the call will agree with that. Uh, when I, you send, you asked this question, I started thinking, okay, the real question for me is, do I have any Jewish memories that are not food related? <laughs> or like, even if it's not directly, it's either related to food or the lack of food or when we can or can't eat and how we eat and what we eat. And I think specifically where I come from in the Hasidic community, our meals were extremely structured and we were told like every Shabbat, we had the exact same about five course meal on Friday night and similar, but with slight differences on Shabbat morning. And we were always told that we it became like this religious obligation that you have to eat from everything. Usually when it came Friday night, the last kind of like main dish before the dessert was always the like different kind of kugels with something called fairful. For those who don't know what it is, it's a kind of like a barley shaped egg pasta that is kind of fried and cooked to put it very briefly. And then the chicken. And we would always be like full at that time because we had challah and some dips and two kinds of fish and soups and whatever. And then my mom would always be like, we don't care. You need to eat, even if you're going to vomit, you need to eat a piece of chicken, you need to eat a piece of chicken. So in many ways, I don't know if I have any Jewish memories that are not food related, but I will say some of my favorite foods and my mom used to cook a lot and, and I will say I've actually just started. Um, so my I, pu- I published my first book, a memoir, a bit more than a year ago. Hopefully talk a bit more about it later. But I'm now in the early stages of hopefully working on a cookbook, which is going to be a mix of looking at my mom's and grandparents' Hasidic recipes and bringing in some modern twist to that as well. But one of my favorite dishes always was my mom had these uh, this pickled chicken version that she would make. So it's like uh, a, a lot of kind of like piece of chicken taken out of the bones that is then put together in like a roll, almost looks like a loaf, and then pickled for I don't know how long. We usually bought it already pickled. And then she would make that only on holidays. So that became like the, if we were really nice, then on Yom Tov, that's the chicken we got. And that became, I think, my favorite. If I smell, there are certain flavors of pickled anything that when I smell that, it still is going to remind me of that chicken since I was really young. And it gives me that like quasi chili feeling sitting outside. Wow. I mean, we've discussed pickles a lot on our show over the last two series, and no one has ever mentioned pickling a chicken before. I don't think I've ever heard of that. Wow. Here's what I would say. I'm not sure how it's pickled, and if it's pickled on the traditional version, I really don't know much about that. Because my mom, I I do know the recipe for it, but it was always the chicken we bought like it. It could also be that it's not pickled in a conventional sense, and we just called it that. I might have to go down to Williamsburg at some point and actually pick up a piece of it and try to figure out how it's made. I I'm don't trying know. to work out if it's like salt beef or like kimchi, but chicken. Definitely not like kimchi. Would you eat it hot or cold? Hot, always hot in like hot. a really great sauce, sometimes sweet, sometimes sour or savory that you can go with wow. different versions of it. 
And it was never like on its own. It always came attached like a main dish on every yum. So for us, it was like with several different kugels and trifle and sweet carrots and simis and like everything else that came with it. It's interesting. And we didn't even call it like pickled chicken was how my mom recalled when she bought it. When we actually served it, we always called it bendelfleisch in Yiddish, which uh, kind of translates to a, a string chicken. I know it doesn't sound as good in English, <laughs> but uh, that was mostly because when you pickle it or whatever acid or whatever they put it in, it's put in like a net, which makes it look like it has strings on it. I talk a bit right. about it in my books. So anyone wants to learn more about pickled chicken. What, what is, what's the book called? Oh, I was going to talk about it later, but it's Becoming Eve. It's mostly right. just my childhood and growing up until the point where I'm leaving. There's more coming, hopefully. And there's a whole chapter on pickled chicken. Not a whole <laughs> chapter, a few paragraphs. <laughs> do a whole session at Limud on pickling chickens. I'm all in. Let's talk about it. Yeah, maybe she'll do that this year. I think you are overestimating the power I have to make bookings for Limud. No, I know. I I, I know who to reach out to. Don't worry. I know some of them are on the call even. We'll we'll pick it (laughs) up. I mean, I think if I if I ever was to present my own session on Limud, it would have to be uh, about the classic debate that we've already started. We've had it. And we probably split the room of people watching this uh, broadcast anyway about whether you say bagel or bagel. Uh, we know that Jews love a broigus, so it's time for us now. We want to hear about your favourite feuds, Adam. I just couldn't. It's very strange for a litigation lawyer, but I mean, I just really try to avoid feuds. Um, I come from quite a feuding family, um, not my, not, you know, my wider family. That's sort of. Um, I call them Bruegus merchants. Um, they're just sort of born for Bruegus. And my grandfather, I think he had eight siblings. And by the time they were sort of older, that literally none of them were talking to any of the rest. I think it's probably an exaggeration, but it wasn't far off. So I'm, um, I go with my mother's approach to life, which just, it, life is too short to have Bruegus's. You know, what is the point? <laughs> so, which is a, strange for someone who chose um, a profession, which is basically arguing for a living. But I guess when people say to to me, like, you know, I, should I become a lawyer? Um, I'm really good at arguing. I love arguing. Um, and I, I often think, well, that's, I, I don't think it's actually a really that good a skill. Um, because if you love arguing, you're never going to come to a conclusion. You can never reach a settlement. You can never actually get anywhere. Um, and I think that obviously there are people who love arguing and love having arguments who do really well in my profession, but it's not for me. I'm very much a sort of kiss and make up kind of person. Um, I mean, I suppose for you, the more important thing is that other people have broigases because that's what will keep you employed yeah, indefinitely. Ex- exactly. And, and, and I try and be either the peacemaker or, or the person who stands up for the for, for my clients, um, which which I'm fine, you know, and you get, you can, you, you do get emotionally involved sometimes. And I think that that generally isn't very helpful because you need to be able to see the wood from the trees. And, and the thing you realize when you spend your life representing people who are involved in these disputes um, or, you know, sometimes through absolutely no fault of their own or even that, that something they never, ever wanted, you realize that it's impossible when you're sort of deep into that to really understand what's happening. Um, that's what judges are meant to do. That's what courts are for, in a way. Although it seems like what lawyers do is make things worse. <laughs> and I think sometimes they do, but I, I you know, that is really not, not for me. So I'm sorry if that's a bit disappointing not to give my favourite Bruegus, but I don't, I just don't like them. I don't, I don't like, I don't like grudges. I don't like Bruegus's. But I think there's also something about the legal side of it that often with a Bruegus, no one knows where they came from. Sometimes it's a really old family feud. And I suppose in the legal sense, you'd need the detail you'd really need to understand how a Bruegus came about so maybe 
Bruegus is the wrong question to ask. But I don't want you feeling bad that it was a disappointing answer, uh, but we are going to see if Abby has a better answer. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily say there's good or better, and we can argue, and good is the same specifically, but they're all bad, because every argument needs to have a counter-argument, otherwise we're not really Jewish, are we? But I want to say, before I get to that, but I love, Adam, the way you were looking at Bruegus and like how everyone at some point in the family was fighting. I heard also a story growing up, and for, for me as a child, it was always told about a reform temple, but uh, which we were always told it's worse go going into a reformed temple is worse than going into a church which i think is going to come up in a second and going into a church was really bad where i come from but the story that i was told as a child was that a jew got shipwrecked to an island with his family and he was the only jew there for 20 years years later another jew shows up on the island to see that the jew has built two synagogues for just him and his family and he's like what's going on why did you build two synagogues he's like what do you mean there's one synagogue where i pray where i daven there's the other synagogue where i don't go if i don't have i needed to show my kids that there's always a synagogue where you don't go it's just kind of like the, the jewish idea with brogas i will say one of the most uh, to me it was the most weird but also extremely informative on the mindset of certain uh, dare i say religious fundamentalists uh, there's the story that I have with my dad. So I started leaving the Hasidic community where I grew up in uh, 2012. And then uh, Yom Kippur 2013 was this part of a two-year period for me where, uh, as one of my mentors today calls it, I had post-God traumatic disorder. I didn't want to have anything to do with Judaism. Anything that's, if you told me then that it would be a day when I will like have rabbi on my Zoom name, I would probably think, well, I wouldn't know what Zoom is at the time, yeah. but also <laughs> probably think you're crazy. So on Yom Kippur 2013, I believe it was, I arranged a camping trip for a lot of people who also grew up uh, Hasidic and ultra-Orthodox and have left. And on the menu, I put as many things made out of a pig that I could possibly find. It was a very like, I don't know, in your face, whoever we did or didn't believe in for Yom Kippur. Two years after that, I ultimately got to a point where I found my community that I really loved. At the time, it was Romamu, which is a Jewish renewal community on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, a community I'm still a member of. So I was there for Yom Kippur, and they asked me to read the Haftorah, kind of a part of the Torah reading on Yom Kippur morning and I did and they had a live stream of it so therefore I had a video so I downloaded the video and I posted it on YouTube and somehow my dad saw it I'm not really sure how he doesn't have internet at home but probably someone showed it to him I'm not sure and he lost it for those of you who don't know anything about Romumu it's a fully egalitarian community so the setting kind of like me imagining what my dad is seeing he opens up this video first of all he's seeing mixed seating which is one of the worst things we can tell a Hasidic person is there's mixed seating praying but even more importantly, there was live music on Yom Kippur, and there was a woman rabbi. Well, a man rabbi as well, but also a woman rabbi. He gave me this whole talk, how he would prefer that I go back to that Yom Kippur in the woods eating pork than being at a service that is mixed eating with live music on Yom Kippur. Which to me was very much, I, I, I felt like, listen, I'm not in the business of trying to convince anyone how they should or shouldn't practice anything. But if your Judaism boils down to a point where it's either my way or don't do anything, then you're doing something wrong. If you really think that your God gets really angry from an egalitarian service where people are sincerely coming together to be their best people, regardless of what your beliefs are, your God sounds like a terrible creature. I don't know. I don't even want to call it a God. But that was my uh, most, I would say, interesting uh, Bruegel story that I've had. But my dad, who is a Hasidic rabbi who runs a synagogue and works for kind of with something that some people call a modesty squad in Williamsburg. I think that's as much as I would say about it. I am going to jump in, actually, on, on Bruegel's. Um, Go for it. Because I think what Abby said really... Um, 
hits home for me. I, I don't know where the phrase comes from. I don't remember, but this idea of the narcissism of small differences, that nothing cuts harder than disputes between very similar people, whether it's, you know, Jewish communities that do things slightly differently. What is it? The, 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 the sort of uh, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi um, Gamliel. Is, is it Akiva and Gamliel who, who had the big arguments um, about the tiny things. You know, I make it sound like I'm, I'm a hippie. I, I'm, I'm not. I do get into arguments when I feel like it's the right thing to do. But I was very involved with this um, issue with anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and, and on the left. And I'm on the left. And, and I found that the most vicious and the most difficult reactions I had, including really sort of quite personally complicated issues, were from Jewish people who said, I'm a Jew on the left and you are wrong. And you're so wrong, I'm, I'm going to sort of crush you. <laughs> and it was the most, you know, the most aggression that I had was really from Jewish people, I think, or, or overall, which I just found really, actually really, I mean, it was upsetting, but also just so <laughs> illustrative of this issue of maybe it's a, quite a Jewish thing of, of, of we see, you know, we, we are, we feel as communities that we are doing the right thing and everyone else is doing the wrong thing. Um, and it's very difficult to get outside of that mentality. I think there's something baked into Jewish communities sometimes that are, because we're so, um, we've got our backs against the walls, maybe we feel persecuted or maybe we are just, just something about the the closeness of the communal, of the community. I don't know, but it's, um, it's very difficult. I don't know what really what the answer to it is, but it's definitely, it's something that's meaningful. Mm, that is the tough one of our times. It is. But what we really want to know, of course, is whether bagel or bagel is the correct way of pronouncing it. So we can get as deep and meaningful as we like. But what we're going to do, we're actually going to launch a Zoom poll that the audience can take part in. I believe this is something that will be <laughs> appearing on the screens. There's already votes coming in. Not that we want to belittle the conversation we're having, but we're going to try and have that in the background whilst this is all going on, because we obviously would like to carry on with the show. Can I just jump in? I feel like it's almost unfair. We should have like an additional question. I want to know how many people are actually native Yiddish speakers. Because I feel like in English, of course, it's pronounced bagel. Most people in That's English not true. It depends where you're from in England. Where I, I grew up in um, Essex, East London, we are very much bagel. You have to bear in mind that some of the people taking part in the poll will have had the vaccine and are now native Russian speakers. So, <laughs> uh, you know. I thought, I thought Bill Gates has taken over their brains. <laughs> so is this so is this is this is anti-Yiddish discrimination, this poll? I, I don't know because what I'm trying to say is like um it is a, it is a war that came into English from Yiddish. So and in turn, I, I think it's from German or from some some other language. So I will say today, first of all, I hope no one is ever going to say that Yiddish is dead. I really have an issue. I know this is not a this is not a talk about Yiddish, but whenever people say Yiddish is dead, I want to take them to Williamsburg and show them the uh, three weekly Yiddish newspapers with hundreds of pages and about a dozen of of weekly uh, Yiddish uh, magazines that are still published every day. But the only Yiddish that is still very much active by now is mostly the Polish-Hungarian Yiddish, which is what Hasidic people speak today. And the vast majority of them say bagel. On my side of the family, I will say my dad's side of the family is actually from Romania and they do say bagel. But the majority of native Yiddish speakers today do say bagel. So I feel like it's a bit of a skewed uh, poll if we uh, don't know how many are really Yiddish speakers. But uh, fine, okay. Well, the poll has been done, and if there's one thing we Brits know, it's how to do a poll. Um, <laughs> so the, the results are in. It is 74% for bagel and 26% for bagel. <laughs> 
anyone who's been to Limerick knows that you can't walk more than 10 feet without bumping into someone who went to camp with you 20 years ago. And in fact, I usually share a room with my old Bener Kiva Madrich, who also, by the way, now happens to be my husband. But if you think of the idea of six degrees of can't eat bacon, other than us, who is your most interesting personal Jewish connection? So, Abby, what about you? I wanted to say many different things. Um, and obviously, there are parts that everyone knows. Like, I am related to every Hasidic Rebbe by blood. If I go back 150 years, I share direct ancestor with every Hasidic Rebbe. Literally, people have tried to challenge me on it. And even I didn't know that it was as accurate until fairly recently. Um, I'm a direct descendant of the founder of the Hasidic movement at five different times. Um, I don't know. Are we all adults? Do you think I can make a joke that's maybe not SPG-13? There are children watching. I can see oh, some okay. now. So I wouldn't say that. I'm, let's just say, let's just say, stick to the fact that I am my own cousin many times. My son is my third cousin, <laughs> and I have three sets of siblings that are first cousins to each other. So uh, we're all kind of related to each other and to everyone. Something that came to my mind when I heard that question that is totally unrelated to that, and not someone who is alive, but something that is, I think, a tidbit that I like. I want to study it more. I am nerdly obsessed with genealogy. I literally traced my ancestry at some point to Emperor Augustus of Rome, which according to the website Jenny.com is my 92nd great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. If it's accurate or not, I have no idea. But there is something more interesting. I grew up being told and knowing that uh, I'm descendant of like, uh, true like the Baal Shem Tov, who's descendant of Rashi, the big commentator, who came from a long lineage of uh, the, what was called, the, it's called the Exleraj, I believe in, in English, I'm probably mispronouncing it. In, in Aramaic, they were called the Rej Guluta, which is uh, surprisingly little known outside of the Orthodox world or, or ultra-Orthodox world. But there was this family of the House of David, Malchut Beit David, which lasted all the way into the 11th century. Not 11th century BC, the 11th century. And they actually had quite a lot of uh, government power and, and they were the leaders, kind of the princes of the Jewish community at the time based in what we would call Galut Bavel, like in where the Talmud Bavli was written, but in reality, kind of what's now Iraq and, and, and Iran, Persia. But one thing that always got me, so the one of the most famous one of these uh, exorahs, one of these princes, went by the name of Bustanai, means a garden in Arabic. And he is a bit more known. You can find him on Wikipedia for anyone who wants to look up a bit more. He is supposedly, at his time, he was the only branch left that was had this like direct dis descendant from the uh, house of David, from the final king of David that is mentioned of, of Malchus Beis David that's mentioned in the Bible. And I knew I, I knew my ancestry to him since I was really young. That made sense. What was always interesting to me is that he was like the Jewish prince during the time of the Islamic conquest, and it never made sense to me because. During the time, yes, they let the Jews live, but when they conquered new areas, they were not known at letting royal families be in control. I started doing some research and I surprisingly learned that that guy who was the leader of the Jewish community and related to what was at that time called the Ga'onim, which were leading the Shivot in Iraq, was a second cousin to the Prophet Muhammad and a great grandson of this Imam who's known as Imam Hashim in Islam who the Hashemites, like the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan to this day, are direct descendants of. And apparently there's a, there used to be, or maybe there still is a belief that his descendants have like a right to royalty. I haven't studied it too much. That is historically accurate. I looked up his historical records. The leader of the Jews at the time of the Islamic conquest of Persia was the second cousin of the prophet. So I just felt like sharing that I think my most interesting Jewish connection is the Prophet Muhammad. I mean, I don't know that that was on anyone was going to guess, <laughs> but very fascinating. Uh, what about you, Adam? Who's your most 
bizarre or interesting Jewish connection? Well, follow follow the Prophet Muhammad. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. That's. I, I mean, sure, can't we just end the podcast now? I, I'm not. I'm not. Where, where well, do I go from the Prophet Muhammad? Die, so we might okay, I, actually, I, I, Jesus was my great great grandfather. No, <laughs> my closest and most important Jewish connection is my wife Julia, who is a Limud celebrity. Um, she did a great session today on RBG. My true celebrity cousin is Daniel Day-Lewis. He's a, wow. he's a sort of distant-ish cousin. Um, oh. his, his father was um, Sir Michael Balcon, who is what my grandpa used to call the rich side of the family. He was a he was the um, Ealing Studios Svengali who created all the Ealing comedies. And my wife, Julia, did a tour around Ealing Studios as part of a sort of Jewish film course a year or two ago, um, which was which was really cool. I've done a bit of ge- genealogical study. In fact, I've really just studied what other people, particularly my my Aunt Jean, have um, done. I've done none of my own study. But my great, great grandfather was a criminal. He's on the old Bailey Records he was caught stealing a shoe from a shop window. And because it was a second offence, he got five years in prison and he fled the country. And as a result, my great-grandfather um, and his brother grew up in a Norwood orphanage um, about 120 years ago, I guess. And I've got, they had their bar mitzvahs in, in, in the orphanage. Um, so that was, that's definitely the poor side of the family. The other side oh. of the family are the, the Daniel Day-Lewis side of the family. I'm yep. desperate to make a joke about him stealing one shoe and Daniel Day-Lewis on my left foot. But it's I don't amazing. It's, it's an amazing, a... it's an amazing <laughs> joke. I mean, honestly, no, I've never, ever thought of that, but it's brilliant. <laughs> Just to come full circle, my wife is related to the Fonz, to, oh, uh, wow. to, to, to Henry Winkler. I know, I mean, that's, that well, beats then... Daniel Day-Lewis in my book. I'm Ahmed. In yeah, in I'm case, Ahmed. We, in that case, we are about, to have some real broigus if series three doesn't see us getting some epic guests <laughs> except Muhammad maybe cannot make it but I think Henry Winkler and definitely Dan Day-Lewis should be free that nearly is all we've got time for uh, before you go how will our audience know what you're up to if you never call you don't write normally we allow 20 seconds for this but for you 30. Adam, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter most of the time. I'm um, Adam Wagner One on Twitter. I've got a podcast called The Better Human Podcast, which is on all podcast platforms and also YouTube. And that's me. And Abby, how about you? So my book is very easy to get. I created a quick URL, tinyurl.com slash Malib. It is sold locally in a shed in the UK as well. I am on Instagram Well, the sound's gone a bit ropey there, but we'll try and get that information about Abby and put it back out to everyone as soon as we can. Well, we might as well do that now. If you want to get hold of Rabbi Abby Stein, her Twitter and Instagram are at Abby Chava Stein. Well, I've absolutely loved this. And from now on, I always think of Abby as the Jew who's related to Muhammad and Adam as the Jew who's a human rights barrister, but he'll elbow you out of the way if it means he can get to the fishbowls first. Just call me JFK. <laughs> and as my grandmother used to say when she wanted to end my telephone calls, you must have better things to do than talk to me. And you must have better things to do than talk to us, which is a good thing, as sadly, we've come to the end of this special live show. We'd like to thank all of you for joining us, the Lamud team for having us, and of course our wonderful guests, Abby Stein and Adam Wagner. Follow them on social media. Follow us on social media at Jew Talking without the G. Don't forget to find Jew Talking to me wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe, like and share with everyone you know and join us next time on Jew Talking to Me Jew Talking to Me was hosted by me Philip Simon and me Rachel Krieger it was produced by Russell Bulkin
Pretty good. Enjoyed it. <laughs> That's a Jewish father A plus. <laughs>